First John is often referred to as a letter, but it's not. And the clue is in the very beginning. Unlike any good letter, there is no, no dear so-and-so or for the community from that we see modeled in the rest of the letters in the New Testament. First John, like Hebrews that we talked about two weeks ago, is more like a sermon or a homily written for a specific people with a specific problem. First John is written around 100 CE, shortly after the Gospel of John, the last Gospel, is written. By someone who is greatly influenced by the Gospel, though it's suspected not the same person. The community that this person is writing to is most likely made up of second-generation followers. No one in this group would have interacted or known or heard the living Christ preach. But these followers are followers because the story of Jesus has called them in a different way. These believers are trying to figure out who they, as this new religious movement of Christianity, are. Amidst a myriad of other religious ideas, from the Roman imperial state to the ancient Jewish faith. But among, also among the many forms of Christianities that would eventually become unified and formalized into Christianity as we know. Within Hebrews, we saw how folks coming from the Jewish tradition were beginning to identify themselves as part of the emerging Christian movement. And today, within 1 John, we see another set of followers doing the same. Unlike Hebrews, who is focusing on a Jewish audience, within both the Gospel of John and 1 John, we see a group writing in opposition to the established Jewish religion. As Christians are no longer practicing, preaching, or teaching as Jesus did in synagogues, this religious distinction is seen today in our passage, in the orthodoxy and the creation of right belief systems. As, this, as their own religious community is forming, we see the people in 1 John asking questions that we ask ourselves today. And within our church specifically, we are asking these questions. What does it mean to be the church? Now what sets 1 John apart, and maybe made it truly a part of the Bible, is its central focus, both in this homily, both mine and 1 John's, and the central focus we see within Jesus's ministry, which feels so appropriate this Sunday after Valentine's Day. To be the church means simply to love God. And if we do that, if we love, the rest will surely follow. Reading from 1 John, chapter 4, verses 7 through 21. My beloved friends, let us continue to love each other since love comes from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and experiences a relationship with God. The person who refuses to love doesn't know the first thing about God because God is love. So you can't know him if you don't love. This is how God showed his love for us. 
God sent his only son into the world so we might live through him. This is the kind of love we are talking about. Not that we once upon a time loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to clear away our sins and the damage that's done to our relationship with God. My dear, dear friends, if God loved us like this, we certainly ought to love each other. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God dwells deeply within us and his love becomes complete in us. Perfect love. This is how we know we're living steadily and deeply in him and he in us. He's given us life from his life, from his very own spirit. Also, we've seen for ourselves and continue to state openly that the Father sent his Son as Savior of the world. Everyone who confesses that Jesus is God's Son participates continuously in an intimate relationship with God. We know it so well. We've embraced it heart and soul, this love that comes from God. God is love. When we take up permanent residence in a life of love, we live in God and God lives in us. This way, love has the run of the house because at home and mature in us so that we are free of worry on judgment day, our standing in the world is identical with Christ's. There is no room in love for fear. Well-formed love banishes fear. Since fear is crippling, a fearful life, fear of death, fear of judgment, is one not yet fully formed in love. We, though, are going to love, love and be loved. First we were loved, now we love. He loved us first. Anyone who boasts, I love God, and goes right on hating his brother or sister, thinking nothing of it, he is a liar. If he won't love the person he can see, how can he love the God he can't see? The command we have from Christ is blunt. Loving God includes loving people. You've got to love both. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. Amen. Would you please pray with me? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorified in your sight, for you, O God, are our rock, and you are our redeemer. Amen. So like many young couples, early when we were married, my husband Dan and I would bat around names for potential children that we would use years down the road. Though now, as I get bigger, we recognize that this is no longer some abstract thought experiment. Uh, there's a lot of power in naming someone, setting them up for success or failure, playground bullying or workplace snickers. Pastor Seth has talked about the importance he took in naming his own boys. Though I have to say, I don't know if Dan and I are gonna quite go the biblical monster route. <laughs> or not. <laughs> but as someone who never had a nickname growing up, other than my one college friend Susan, who I know we all have this one college friend, who insisted on calling me Kenny for all four years that we were in school together. Please don't call me Kenny. <laughs> 
But I've always wanted a name that could be shortened, abbreviated to some cute um, version of my larger name. And so when thinking of names for our own children, I picked names that had the nickname option. The nickname Theo being one that I loved for boys. Teddy Roosevelt and his rough riding ways and the creation of the national park system being one of my favorite presidents, I thought it was clear that the nickname Theo would be tied for a little one named Theodore. But upon sharing the love of the name Theo, Dan excitedly exclaimed that he's always wanted to name a child Theophilus. <laughs> yeah, to say that I balked is an understatement. I've never had a good poker face. Uh, you can read my joy or my sorrow or my frustration or my shock. Uh, Theophilus. But the name's meaning is a beautiful one. Theo, God, Ophilus, lover. God lover or lover of God. And while Theophilus is a hard no for the future name of our child, I cannot help but wonder what does it mean to live as a lover of God? When I was in college, I would go backpacking several times a year with a good friend of mine, Devin. Devin was studying environmental science and took classes in plant taxonomy and ornithology. And as we hiked, Devin would stoop down to the tiniest flower, or he would listen to the faintest bird calls, naming the types of plants on the ground and the birds in the air both their common and their scientific name. I think he was just showing off at that point. But Devin would often ask me as he stopped identifying a plant, he'd stopped it many times before if I recognized it. Some I would learn, but more often than not, the names flowed through my brain like the water of the mountain streams where we walked, not staying for long, but moving on. <laughs> I remember telling him, that I was intentionally not learning these names, that in not knowing, I was able to experience the wonder and the awe of the plants and of the world. And I wondered if knowing took away some of the magic I felt. Though if I'm honest, it was merely an excuse for my own disinclination. Forgetting to know something, whether it's the trill of birdsong or the pattering of a leaf or the favorite food of a loved one, is a way that we are showing our love. This is the entire focus of the homily we see in 1 John, love. Though the approach is a little different. Instead of knowledge breeding love, that love brings about knowledge. In 1 John specifically, how through loving, we grow in knowledge of God. I think of this often when I come here to worship. That here, spending intentional time together in the hymns, in the songs, in the prayers, and God willing, in the preaching, that we're learning about God. In the moments where worship gives us comfort, and maybe especially in the moments when worship gives us discomfort. I had a spiritual director once who told me that I needed to learn to sit into the discomfort. 
So often, maybe you like me, we want to put aside our discomfort, we want to move on to the next thing, keep going, focus on the positive. But she wondered if maybe in my discomfort I would find a teacher. And this is especially true for me in worship. Maybe there's a sermon that makes you feel uncomfortable. Or the silence within a prayer lasts just a couple moments too long. For me, my discomfort is often seen and felt in the ways that I want things to go perfectly. And while we're blessed with amazing worship here and the music that makes our hearts sing to God and words that inspire, I wonder if that's not only where God is. If Jesus taught us anything, God is in the love that exists in the real and in the messy and in the flawed. God is in the joyful singer who is slightly off pitch, or the liturgist who stumbles over their words but believes in the importance of speaking them anyway. And our discomfort, my discomfort, often says more about me and about us than it does about God. I remember as a little girl, my pastor father would often have me serve as the liturgist, especially in the summer months, and especially when everyone but my family and some of our more tried and true members seemed to be away on some glorious summer holiday. And so I remember one hot summer Sunday, the sun streaming in through the stained glass windows, I stood in front of the church and I read the wrong thing, and I stuttered, and I faltered, and finally, in all of my middle school glory, I swore and I ran off crying down the center aisle. I was crying in my shame and in my embarrassment, but after the service, member after member found the quiet corner where I hid, and they told me that they loved me, and that they didn't care and neither did God, that they were proud of me and that they could not wait for me to try again. Love always comes first. Throughout time, Christianity has toted how we have understood God. We've used words like power and might to describe God. We've used words like judgment and justice creator God even. But if we start from these places, then we will risk creating a God based in fear, not love. In a sermon given by famous preacher William Sloan Coffin at Riverside Memorial Church in New York, he said that the opposite of love isn't hate, the opposite of love is fear. I think these same words were echoed by Martin Luther King Jr. That the opposite of love isn't hate, the opposite of love is fear. But here in 1 John, we're given another way because love is first and always and eternal. God's love is never conditional or transactional. It does not demand performance or perfection. It doesn't demand at all. God's love for us is an action, 
It lives in us. It changes and transforms us in our confidence. As Paul writes in Romans that there is nothing, there is nothing that we have done and there is nothing that we have left undone that can separate us from the love of God. And we love God by seeking God in a search that is never about some destination, but is always about the journey. We seek God through our lived experiences, seeing God and naming God as we name the plants of the earth and the birds of the air. We love God by showing up, by recognizing the power that God gave us here in community, in this time and this sacred place of worship, not in its perfection, but in the ways that we carve out space for God's presence to flow in and among us and to practice what it looks like to live in beloved community. And lastly, we love God in our actions. First John is quite explicit that we cannot claim to love God and then not love our siblings. Because of the confidence we are given in and by God's love, we are transformed to be the presence of love in and to the world and to share that love with others. Thomas Merton, a modern day mystic, writes that love is not merely something that happens to you like you're some passive recipient, but that love is an active way of living and being alive. And how we view love ultimately will change and transform how we live. He writes, and genuine love is a personal revolution. It transforms our entire life. Real love takes your ideas, your desires, and your action and welds them together into one experience and one living reality, which is a new you. Now I know any human comparison to how we love God and how God loves us is limited. But this week, a friend shared a poem by Billy Collins called The Lanyard, in which he writes of the love of a parent and a child. And I wonder if our love for God and God's love for us might be like this too. He writes, the other day I was ricocheting slowly off the blue walls of this room, moving as if underwater from typewriter to piano, from bookshelf to an envelope lying on the floor, when I found myself in the L section of the dictionary, where my eyes fell upon the word lanyard. No cookies nibbled by a French novelist could send me, send one into a past more suddenly, a past where I was at a workbench, at a camp by a deep lake in the Adirondacks learning how to braid long, thin plastic strips into a lanyard, a gift for my mother. I'd never seen anyone use or wear a lanyard, if that's actually what you do with them. But that did not keep me from crossing strand over strand again and again, until I had made a boxy red and white lanyard for my mother. She gave me life, and milk from her breast, and I gave her a lanyard. 
She nursed me in many a sick room, lifted spoons of medicine to my lips, laid cold compresses on my forehead, and then led me out into the airy light and taught me to walk and to swim. And I, in turn, presented her with a lanyard. Here are thousands of meals, she said, and here is clothing and a good education. And here is your lanyard, I replied, which I made with a little help from my counselor. Here is a breathing body and a beating heart, strong legs, bones, and teeth, and two clear eyes to see the world, she whispered. And here, I said, is a lanyard that I made at camp. And here, I wish to say to her now, is a smaller gift. Not the worn truth that you can never repay your mother, but the rueful admission that when she took the two-tone lanyard from my hand, I was sure as a boy could be that this useless, worthless thing I wove out of boredom would be enough to make us even. In our love, in our love, we falter and we fail. In our own oblivion, we miss the muchness of God's love for us. And in the ways that we love one another, we make mistakes. We say the wrong things. We think the lanyards that we offer even some score that doesn't even exist. Our mother God just calls us to love and to try again and again. We learn and grow in how we love, how we love ourselves, one another, and her. To keep showing up, to seek to know God, to join in community lifting prayers and praise, and to make our love into action. Love the verb that moves and breathes, that feeds and clothes and holds one another's brokenness and says, as God does, you are loved. Despite the fact that our little one will not be named Theophilus, I pray that they will be Theophilus. I pray that they will be a lover of God, transformed by the abundance and assurance of God's love. I pray that they will seek to see and to know God in the world around them and in their lives, that they will join in imperfect communities to worship and to pray and to praise the presence of God, and that their love of God will be lived out in the ways that they love others offering their tiny gifts of twine woven together and realizing that despite its smallness, it is also enough. May it be so for me and for all of you. Amen.